2: Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. A senior federal district judge has hinted he believes the Justice Department will, quote, move, unquote, against Trump quote, in a few months, I suspect, unquote. This is the most intriguing comment yet about the special counsel's investigation of Donald J. Trump. Judge Paul L. Friedman, on the record, in his courtroom in Washington, in his 30th year on the bench, as he sentences a January 6th defendant to 52 months in prison, says, quote, There are still people who believe the election was rigged. There are still people who support Donald Trump, though not many showed up at the court in Manhattan. We'll see what happens here at this court when the Justice Department moves in a few months, I suspect. Was Judge Friedman ruminating, calculating, or was he revealing things to come "'This is not some novice who does not understand the meaning of his words "'and the meaning of the venue in which he said them.' And as he put Robert Sanford in prison for four years and four months for being an ex-firefighter who threw a fire extinguisher at cops during the coup, Judge Friedman warned of the upcoming danger of further such violent acts on Trump's behalf. And he said, we'll see what happens here at this court. That would be the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, quote, when the Justice Department moves in a few months, I suspect. Even if that is not Judge Friedman giving us a forecast, but just an informed guess, a rumination. It is an extraordinary thing for him to say, and it needs to be literally parsed as if we were diagramming sentences back in eighth grade English grammar composition class. This is, after all, the judge responsible for the continuing supervision of the would-be assassin of President Reagan, John David Hinckley. This is the judge who is the secretary of the American Law Institute, and this is a judge who has spoken out previously against Trump for Trump's incendiary attacks on judges, hinting at violence, essentially threatening it. On the surface, the judge was telling the defendant, his lawyers, and prosecutors that cases like the fire extinguisher throwing firefighter are no longer just about the January 6th we have already had. They are now also about preventing the next January 6th. The pivotal sentence applies to that subject. Clearly, it is about how Trump's goons might respond, quote, at this court, the D.C. District Court, quote, when the Justice Department moves. That's certainly clear. Friedman is guessing or revealing or warning that the Justice Department is going to move against Trump, quote, in a few months, I suspect. Now, the I suspect addendum throws uncertainty and judgment into either the idea that the DOJ will move or that the DOJ will move in a few months or both. So that could be when the Justice Department moves, pause in a few months, I suspect, or when the Justice Department moves in a few months, I suspect. But either way, regardless of exactly which phrase modifies and lessens which other phrase, eyebrows went up at the sentencing yesterday afternoon and they have remained up. In the same town, in the same justice system, Trump's Nosferatu, Stephen Miller, the undead, Went back before the grand jury hearing the evidence in special counsel Smith's investigation of January 6th of the Mar-a-Lago classified documents Trump stole of Trump's attempts at fraudulently changing the election outcomes in Georgia and elsewhere. Miller was one of the Trump hedgemen, denied executive privilege, and several sources said he was going to be asked about, in his second trip before this grand jury, what he and Trump discussed in the moments before Trump sent the assemblage of insurrectionists from the Ellipse to the Capitol to try to end American representative government. We know Trump and Miller were on the phone literally minutes before Trump took that stage. Stephen Miller said nothing to reporters who spotted him going into the courthouse yesterday. And that is, of course, understandable because it presumably takes all his strength just to survive in daylight. And as if one were needed, the Daily Beast has produced an extraordinary link between the special counsel's pursuit of the defendant. Soon, I think. And the Manhattan District Attorney's arrest of the defendant last week, if I remember. There were two first-year attorneys who worked together in the so-called rookie class of 1994 in the office of the legendary Manhattan District Attorney Robert Morgenthau. One was no less than the special counsel Jack Smith, and the other was Juan Mershon, now the justice at the New York Supreme Court, the one who presided over the arraignment last week and is expected to hear the Trump-Stormy Daniels-David Pecker case when it goes to trial. In New York... I believe I have suggested four or five times here that what the current Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg was saying in his responses to Jim Jordan and Trump's other henchmen in the house as they threatened to subpoena him for records and testimony and dirty him up to make Trump look better, and then they scheduled a field hearing to look into, quote, violence in New York, even though the violence is worse in all the places the Trump henchmen are from, what Bragg was saying to them was, keep this crap up and I'm gonna hit you with obstruction of justice. Well, yesterday, D.A. Bragg hit them with a preface to obstruction of justice. He has sued in federal court in the Southern District of New York, accusing G.Y.M. Jim of a, quote, brazen and unconstitutional attack, a transparent campaign to intimidate and attack the D.A., Quoting again, rather than allowing the criminal process to proceed in the ordinary course, Chairman Jordan and the committee are participating in a campaign of intimidation, retaliation, and obstruction. There's that word obstruction again. Bragg is getting a court to rule that he does not have to testify and that Jordan should STFU. I like this play by Bragg. He will not just ignore the subpoena from Jordan nor wait to have the DOJ ignore Jordan's attempt to hit him with contempt of Congress. Bragg will tie Jordan up and his committee up in court. And guess who's going to be better at that? A fifth-rate congressman from Lima, Ohio, or the DA of Fun City? Democrats in Congress turn out to have a play as well. Jerry Nadler and city officials will be holding a news conference just before the Republicans' field hearing next Monday. Now, nobody is saying this, but the city should also run the standard reaction to anybody who shows up here trying to show us up. Oh, yeah, your car. Yeah, legally parked. Can't you read? Sign says, begin no parking here Wednesdays, October, sunny days, 3 p.m. to 4.15 a.m., 2 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Except snow removal, evacuation routes, no standing. It's over in the impound lot by the river. You can have it back in the year 25-25. And lastly, on this point, there may or may not be crying in, say, baseball. But if the defendant is to be believed, there was crying in the Manhattan criminal courthouse understand there are millions of people who are going to take this story seriously. Tucker Carlson did one of his famous flatulent lap-sitting interviews with the defendant last night. It is good they pay Tuck that much for these things. I'm sure the cash will come in handy for him in hell. In this interview, well, it's not an interview, it's nodding practice The hallucinating, abnormal would-be dictator, the defendant, laid on all the schmaltz he could in recounting his arrest, arraignment, and release here last week, and how the staff at 100 Center Street in Manhattan treated him. It has everything but the word sir in it. Quote, they were incredible. When I went to the courthouse, which is also a prison in a sense, they signed me in, and I'll tell you, people were crying, unquote. People always cry in front of Trump. At least Trump says they do, or thinks they do, or lies that they do. Quoting again, people that work there, professionally work there, that have no problems putting in murderers, and they see everybody. It's a tough, tough place. And they were crying. They were actually crying. They said, I'm sorry. People were crying. They were crying. They were actually crying. They said, I'm sorry. On this quote parsing edition of the Countdown podcast, think about what the construction sounds like in that pathetic statement or more correctly, who it sounds like. Quote, there was this icicle and it fell off the garage and it hit me in the eye and and it hit my cheek and it broke my glasses Little Ralphie in A Christmas Story, written by Gene Shepard, Lee Brown, Bob Clark, 1983. Little Ralphie is in the third grade. They signed me in, and I'll tell you, people were crying. People that worked there, professionally worked there, that had no problems putting in murderers, and they see everybody. It's a tough, tough place, and they were crying. They were actually crying. They said, I'm sorry. You know, maybe they actually were crying. Listening to that clip and reading that Trump quote, if I had to stand in front of him and hear him say that shit, I'd start crying, too. Still ahead on this edition of Countdown, and boy, is there a lot of news to do postscripts on. As the vote to put Justin Pearson back into the Tennessee State House awaits, an impact of the protest he and Justin Jones led that nobody saw coming. I didn't see this coming. The Republican governor of that state actually took a step, a small one, to try to mitigate gun madness. The latest on the really pressing need, we must defund Clarence Thomas. The Democrats picked their venue for their convention next year, Chicago. The Democrats in Chicago. The Democrats in Chicago again. What could possibly go wrong? And in things I promise not to tell, talk about things going wrong, just because 23-year-old Keith could have 40 beers in one day, does not mean that 23-year-old Keith should have had 40 beers in one day. A harrowing tale in which I still don't quite understand how I not only survived, but was at work, on the air, on radio at 5.30 the following morning. That's next. This is an all-new edition of Countdown.
0: At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field.
2: This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Postscripts to the news. Some updates, some insights, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Nashville yesterday on the eve of the vote to appoint Justin Pearson to serve as interim replacement for expelled Tennessee state rep himself a surprise from tennessee's republican governor bill lee after the covenant school mass shooting lee proposed legislation that cynically dealt only with hardening schools more locks more guards more guns turned schools into prisons yesterday the governor seemed to respond tentatively insufficiently but materially against the republican playbook and towards the protests in his state Lee issued an executive order designed to strengthen background checks for firearm purchases, and he asked lawmakers to pass an order of protection law, which will make it easier to keep people who have committed crimes from getting guns. It may be working. State line, Washington, the battle over the unfortunate fact that the Republican activist and mega donor Harlan Crow is the sole owner and operator of Clarence Thomas has taken a turn for the stupid. First, it was an opinion piece in The Hill written by a biographer of Clarence Thomas who wrote that the Thomas corruption issue should have been dropped once Ginny Thomas told the January 6th commission she and her husband never discussed her efforts to, you know, overthrow the government. That should have settled it. The title of Scott Douglas Gerber's piece, Supreme Court justices are allowed to have friends. Friends, yes. Owners, no. Unfortunately, the piece was then answered in The New Republic by Michael Tomasky. His article was titled, The Democrats Need to Destroy Clarence Thomas's Reputation, which, while true, ignores the fact that Clarence Thomas has already destroyed Clarence Thomas's reputation. And anyway, the best title for a Clarence Thomas op-ed would be titled, Defund Clarence Thomas. All these questions about Thomas center on one thing. Can you have a duet with a guy like Harlan Crow and the answer is no. Thank you Nancy Faust. Dateline Wilmington, Delaware. Jury selection set to begin tomorrow in the $1.6 billion defamation suit against Fox by Dominion Voting Systems. Judge Eric Davis of Delaware Superior Court has narrowed what each side can bring up about the other. Dominion cannot raise the issue of January 6th. Fox cannot argue that it televised its lies about Dominion on the idea that regardless of whether they were true, they were newsworthy. That is the exact premise of how Fox has operated since 1996. We're not saying it's true. We're just saying it happened. Dateline Chicago. That is where the 2024 Democratic National Convention will occur, August 19th to 24th. Used to be a regular thing for both parties to convene in chicago the republicans met there 14 times but not since 1960 the democrats went 10 times ending in 1956 it's not hard to figure why when travel was mostly or exclusively by train chicago was basically the midpoint of the country Then came the airplane and the Democratic Convention of 1968 and the police riot against anti-war protesters. There has been only one convention by either party there since the Dems in 1996 when Bill Clinton was a lock for renomination. Dateline Washington. How will the Democrats approach Trump as a campaign issue? Whether or not he is the nominee by the time they get to Chicago, the David Brock Democratic group Facts First USA says that Trump's arrest has clarified what the Democrats should do, that it gives the party, quote, a perfect opportunity to further tie House Republicans to the MAGA extremists of their party. The Trump indictments ultimately stand as an indictment of House Republicans and their efforts to shield Trump and other lawbreakers. Unquote. I think David Brock has it nailed when he says that a key to the campaign at the national, local and state level is to play Republicans who defended Trump or tried to stay silent as, quote, siding with criminals, siding with criminals As a caveat, David Brock once paid me to give a fire and brimstone speech to one of his fundraising meetings. As an aside, this was the speech I gave outdoors in Florida on the eve of the 2017 inauguration. The speech actually earned me a standing O and some converts, but this is the literal truth. I was apparently so radical and not what they expected that at certain moments early on in the speech when I paused... The audience was so shocked by some of my suggestions about the need for metaphorical war against the GOP and Trump that the audience was completely silent. And since we were outside, I could literally hear crickets. You do not really know what the phrase, you could hear crickets, means until you are giving a speech and you literally hear crickets. Still ahead on Countdown, don't drink. When I say don't drink, I mean, yeah, you can drink. One or two a week is not going to affect you either way. 40? 40 in one day? Let me tell you, from bitter personal experience from 1982, that'll affect you. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens, other than myself in 1982, who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Tie for the bronze. Leo Terrell and Clay Travis, two guests on Fox, quote, news, unquote. They are different. I believe the correct polite term is they are challenged. Leo Terrell is angry about the FBI, which apparently used one agent to see if a Virginia Catholic church had been infiltrated by a dangerous extremist. The right is reacting to this kind of like it's the crucifixion. And as if, you know, there aren't right-wing fake Christians at every level of, you know, domestic terrorism. Anyway, this Terrell is demanding that FBI Director Christopher Wray be fired for this and be replaced by... It's right here in front of me, and I don't believe I'm seeing this. Let me quote him. This is why we need a guy like Dan Bongino to be the next FBI Director, and I'm dead serious about that. Dan Bongino is the ex-New York cop who is 0 for 3 running for Congress and who draws his hair on. Meanwhile, this Travis guy is nominally a sports commentator, only he doesn't understand anything about sports either. But since he's a reliable redneck, Fox has him on to talk politics. Quoting him, Joe Biden is an accidental president. They hit him in his basement. He did virtually nothing. And he only won by 20,000 votes after they rigged the entire election, after they hit everything associated with Hunter Biden, with the big tech, with the big media, with the big Democrat party collusion that all worked in his favor, OK? glad they've learned something from the dominion suit let me do a call back and read that quote again from clay travis they hid him in his basement and he did virtually nothing and he only won by twenty thousand votes after they rigged the entire election after they hit everything associated with hunter biden with the big tech with the big media with the big democrat party collusion that all worked in his favor okay moron clay travis moron Runner-up, Congressman Tom Tiffany of Wisconsin, who told Muiabatawomo on Fox Business that New York is some sort of hellscape. And it used to be great, but now they've got, I don't know, I guess he thinks they've got, like, dinosaurs or something on the streets here. Quote, I hear from people regularly out here in Wisconsin, they're like, I don't know if I want to go to New York City right now because it's not safe. Tiffany represents basically the Wausau-Chippewa Falls metroplex. But it is noteworthy that the website bestplaces.net has a complicated index of all crime statistics, gives you one round number where the lower the score, the better. New York City's violent crime score is 28, which is slightly worse than average. Milwaukee's violent crime score out there in Wisconsin is 73, which is really bad. But our winner, Texas State Republican Representative Brian Slayton of Austin. On March 8th of this year, Brian Slayton introduced legislation to ban any drag show of any kind that has kids in the audience. He called drag shows, quote, grooming events that were only about, quote, the sexualization of our children. That was on March 8th. On March 31st, according to a complaint reportedly just filed with the Texas legislature, Representative Slayton invited a female intern to his home late on a weekend night. And he plied her with alcohol, even though she's under 21 and not yet old enough to drink legally. And then he made up fake emails that he showed her that suggested somebody had found out about him inviting this underage girl to his house to ply her with alcohol. So he made her pledge not to tell anybody. He denies all this. By the way, that bill Brian Slayton had introduced 23 days before drinks over at Bry's house. In his press release announcing it, Representative Slayton had said, quote, the state has a duty to protect kids from being sexually exploited. Yes. Yes, it does. Texas State Representative Brian, but I wasn't wearing a dress. So how could I have groomed her? Slayton, today's worst person. In the world!
1: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
2: Still ahead on Countdown, sure, 40 beers in one day from like 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. sounds like a lot. On the other hand, I came from a long line of functioning alcoholics, and this was 1982, so a harrowing story I hope you learned from, I sure did, in Things I Promise Not to Tell Next. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. To New York and Sammy, a 70-pound tan and blonde guy who is on the kill list at the City Pound. He was a loyal family dog here for four years, loved the kids in his family, loved when they took him out running in the fields, loved showing off his ability to sit, shake, spin, roll, play with them, and then in December they took him out of the house and dumped him at the shelter. He was fine at first, all those new human friends, but after four months he understands. He's been abandoned. He's now acting out with other dogs and they're going to kill him for it. Jesus, when do we stop killing? People, animals, the animal who is the surest sign of a benevolent god, dogs. Sammy needs our pledges to help a rescue pull him out and save him. Look for Sammy in my Twitter feeds. I thank you, and Sammy thanks you. To the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me, and how I learned not to drink. Anybody over the age of 27, and the number may actually be way lower than that, can look back in genuine horror at a day on which they did something alarming or potentially physically injurious or fatal at a much younger age. For me, since the day I turned 23 and a half on July 27th, 1982, that day was July 25th, 1982. And I remember on my 23rd and a half birthday being kind of surprised that I had made it through the previous three days. July 25th, 1982 is one of those timeless, airless, stultifying summer Sundays in New York that can arrive and sit on your head and do its best to smother you. It can get there anytime from the end of May until the middle of September. I was invited to a party on Long Island, Syosset, maybe, where nine college friends We're already having a great time drinking. My friend Peter rented a duplex there and shared it with some radio colleagues of his, including, impossibly, the former New York Rangers hockey player Pete Stemkowski. My friend Glenn Cornelius, who we would lose when he turned 39 and whose name is on the studios of our Cornell radio station's new facility, along with my dad's, was there. He was in charge of grilling the burgers. And his wife was there. Then my friend Peter's parents and a pal who used to be Pat Lyons in a T-shirt, but is now Patrick J. Lyons of the Foreign Desk of the New York Times, thank you, in a beard and a three-piece suit that makes him look like Britain's ambassador to this country in 1897. I mention all this because it is in my diary for the next day. I don't actually remember it, and I don't actually remember it because it was so damn hot that I would not leave Peter's well-air-conditioned living room even to go grab a burger that Glenn Cornelius was fixing with expert precision. I just sat there. I just sat there and drank beer. Mind you, I didn't drink a lot in college or thereafter. I was never once carded in my life. I think I got my first bar beer at the age of 13. But as of that day in 1982, I don't believe I had ever had something to drink on three consecutive days. And I probably hadn't had anything to drink on two consecutive days more than four or five times in my life. But that day was so oppressive, so unpleasant that I just kept drinking beer. And I did not stop from my arrival at 2 or 3 p.m. until my departure just before 10 I had a beer in my hand for seven, eight hours without interruption. In those days, if I stuck to one kind of beverage, I would neither stay obviously drunk nor would I get a hangover. I do not know how many beers I had that stultifying afternoon and evening. If I only got a new beer every 15 minutes, that would still be 28 or 30 beers. Might have been less. Might have been more. My guess is it was more closer to 40. I recall having the presence of mind to ask my friends Peter, Pat, and Glenn not merely to take me to the train station so I could get back to my apartment in the city, but to stay with me on the platform to make sure I got on the train rather than falling in front of it. I also remember them going so far as to make sure not just that I got on, but that I sat down. And I recall being overjoyed at the train's air conditioning, considering that at 10 p.m. that night at the train station, it was still 90 degrees out. I'm pretty sure I splurged, and it was a splurge in those days, for a cab back from Penn Station to my home on the other side of town, even though my salary as the national sports correspondent for CNN was $26,000 a year. And never once in all of this boozy time did I forget... That not only was I due in at CNN at 9.30 the following morning, but that I was also due in at my part-time job as the backup sportscaster on a New York radio station, WNEW, at 4 the next morning. It was past 11 p.m. when I got into my apartment, whose air conditioner was poorly designed for the purpose and did little but blow air around, though still wobbly from drink. 28 beers, 30, 40 I immediately set two alarms for 3 a.m., four hours hence. I got a huge block of ice out of my freezer. I put it in the tub in front of my giant room fan. I took a delightful shower. I did not dry off. I simply wrapped myself in my bed sheet, and I fell asleep. I woke up to the alarms three and a half hours later, slightly less drunk, but not much less drunk. I showered again, shaved, and still drunk, put on a suit, shirt, and tie, checked the temperature, which had cooled all the way down to a balmy 88, and still drunk, I walked in the middle of the night through the risky New York of 1982 to the radio station 14 blocks downtown. But of course it was morning. And morning, whether you are drunk or not still drunk, means breakfast. So I stopped at the best all-night diner, among several that were open along the route, and I got something to go. Eggs, bacon, and sausage, a little French toast, orange juice, coffee, and of course, two pieces of pastry. And I carried it, and I was still drunk, into WNEW Radio, Metro Media Radio in New York. I greeted, still drunk, the newscasters and producers. I grabbed the roll of sports wire copy, still drunk, that had been churning out since about 6 p.m. the night before, and still drunk, found the stories I needed, and still drunk, while I ate my breakfast that would today sustain me for three and a half weeks. I wrote my first sportscast to air at 5.30 a.m. I finished it. I looked at the clock. It was 4.30 a.m., so since the sports stories rarely changed on the morning shift, I, still drunk, wrote the 6.30 sportscast as well, and then the 7.30, and still drunk, and it's still being only 5.10 a.m., I wrote the last of the sportscasts, the 8.30. In point of fact, drunk, I was working faster than I normally did. A perusal of world history suggests that the stories of the morning included the Yankees losing six to four to the Angels with ex-Yankee Reggie Jackson going one for three in front of 51,561 sweating fans at Yankee Stadium. That Dave Kingman made two unassisted double plays at first base for the Mets as they lost three to two with the victorious Padres placing the tragic second baseman Alan Wiggins on the disabled list because he had been arrested for cocaine possession, and that goalie Hubert Birkenheimer starred as the New York Cosmos won their fifth straight game, 11th straight at home over the San Diego Sockers. An ill-fated Olympic sort of thing called the National Sports Festival was well underway in Indianapolis. It was as boring then as it sounds now, no matter how drunk your sportscaster happened to be. At 5.30 a.m., I went on the air, still drunk, and read my script flawlessly. By 6.30, I was beginning to sober up. At 7.30, I was a little headachy. At 8.30, I was now 100% not drunk. I said goodbye to all of my radio colleagues. I checked the temperature, now back up to 93 degrees, and I went out and walked one block to the downtown subway train, that would take me to the world trade center and the 8-hour day that awaited me as a reporter out in the field with a camera crew and oh by the way in 1982 that particular subway line did not have air conditioning my diary entry leaves out the story that i covered that day for cnn but it does note that i made a tape of the drunken radio sports casts and listened that evening and enjoyed them immensely Because I had no memory of researching, composing, writing, or reading them whatsoever. My diary also says I made dinner plans with a girl at WNEW who I was dating, and I flirted with another woman at CNN who said that my new publicity photos had made me look like a puppy dog. She and I also made dinner plans. This is like a month and a half of life for me today, or even at the age of 33, let alone 23. I remember either that day or the next, possibly as I listened to the sportscasts I had done while on still drunken autopilot, that it was very impressive to me that I had managed to do all this without swearing on radio, or fainting while standing up and holding a CNN microphone out in the 93 degree heat, or getting unwell in front of either of those girls, that I could, in the parlance of those just post madmen years, hold my alcohol and then I also remember that just as quickly I remembered in 1982 the names of some of my father's uncles and several of my mother's cousins who they had told me had all died around the age of 40, 45, because bluntly they could also hold their alcohol. Where I got the phrase, I don't know, but I did think of it that night. It's not you are holding your alcohol. It's called functional alcoholism. And functional alcoholism will allow you to drink 40 beers one night and then work from 4 a.m. to 6 p.m. the next. Then later, it'll come back and, you know, kill you. Since that episode in July 1982, the number of times I have had double-digit drinks on one day is one. I was 37. I was going to a party celebrating what everybody else was believing was me joining their Chicago radio station, but which I alone knew management had instead decided to close that radio station and fire all of them. And before I left my hotel, I took a bunch of the hotel business cards with me because I wasn't sure I'd still be able to speak later that night. I wanted a card so I could just hand it to the cab driver. And that is exactly what happened. And legitimately, I do not believe that in all the years since then, and that's 1996, I have ever had anything to drink two days in a row. And that streak probably goes back to 1982 as well. Never have anything to drink two days in a row. And not to preach. But may I suggest that you shouldn't either. (laughs) I've done all the damage I can do here. Lord knows what I did to my brain that day. Thank you for listening. Hear the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Alderman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN, Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. And our announcer today was Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad. Everything else is pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 827th day, since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Don't forget to keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. <laughs> countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.